Listener Production. Hello, Sasha Barbagat with you. Welcome to The Briefing. It is back to school this week for millions of students across the country. Of those 4 million students enrolled in schools in Australia, about two-thirds go to public schools. That leaves the rest in Catholic or independent private schools, with annual fees pushing $50,000 a year at some of the most elite campuses in 2024. It's time to look at what the data says on student performance in the private versus public school debate. If you take kids with the same demographic background and, and look at their results in a private school versus a public school, there is no difference. Uh, And so paying money didn't make any difference. That is coming up in the second half of today's episode. First off, though, Bensie and Seabert is here with me for the headlines. It's Monday, January 29. Senna seals the deal with an epic comeback. And he is the Australian Open champion. That was the sound of 22-year-old Yannick Sinner winning the Australian Open. The Italian world number four took out Russian Daniil Medvedev in a five-setter, lasting three hours and 44 minutes. Medvedev won the first two sets before Sinner launched a comeback for the ages, managing to take the match 3-6-3-6-6-4-6-4-6-3. Following the match, he thanked his parents for helping him achieve his dream. I wish that everyone could have my parents because they always let me, let me choose whatever I wanted to. They never put pressure on myself. Yeah, this was huge, Bensian. Um, and I've got to say, it's the first player in exactly a decade, not named Djokovic, Nadal or Federer, to win the Oz Open. What a relief to see a different name uh, taking, taking top honours there. And it is also the first men's final since 2005 to not feature any of the big three. So a massive win for Sinner. Um, and he only dropped one set in the tournament when he played Novak Djokovic in the semifinal. Also worth mentioning, of course, we had the women's final on Saturday. Arena Sabalenka took out Chinwen Zheng to win the women's singles title in straight sets. And Aussie Matthew Ebden was one half of of a men's doubles duo to take home the trophy. And that was with his partner, Rowan Bapana from India. So the Oz Open has wrapped for another year. I'm sure anyone in Melbourne would be very sad. It's a huge time of year for uh, for Victoria. But um, yeah, on to the next. To the Middle East now, and three US troops have been killed in an airstrike in Jordan, with Joe Biden vowing to hold all those responsible to account. The president has issued a statement this morning, our time, confirming the deaths, along with injuries to 25 other service members. He's attributed the strikes to Iran-backed militia groups, with work continuing to identify exactly which ones were involved. These are the first US deaths after months of airstrikes by Iran-backed militias as the war between Israel and Hamas rages on. And in other news in the region, Australia has joined 10 other countries in suspending aid to the UN Relief and Works Agency for Palestine Refugees, which operates in Gaza. And that was after a number of the agency's workers were accused of taking part in the October 7 attacks on Israel. The UN Secretary General says nine staff have so far been dismissed over their involvement. 
But Antonio Guterres is urging countries which have cut funding to reconsider, saying Palestinians in need shouldn't go without because of the actions of a few. And the UNRWA has 13,000 staff in Gaza and also educates 30,000 children. And Bensian, you've also got an update for us on the ICJ case against Israel. Yeah, so there was a hearing late on Friday night where the court issued what's called provisional measures, which are emergency measures that are supposed to be put in while the court takes, you know, years and years to figure out whether or not Israel, in fact, is committing a genocide as South Africa is accusing it of. Uh, It ruled that it's Israel must do everything in its power to prevent the deaths of civilians, they must urgently let in needed humanitarian aid, and they must punish incitements to genocide. But this was not the ceasefire that South Africa has been calling for and a lot of people have been calling for. But because it has issued these uh, provisional rulings, that means the court believes it's plausible that Israel is committing genocide. So I guess both sides in this argument, this horrific argument, are able to claim a kind of victory from this. Neo-Nazis in New South Wales have been warned they could be unmasked after two public gatherings in Sydney over the weekend, including one on Australia Day. So if you're thinking that you can be anonymous and spread your hate, you can't. You'll be exposed as a racist to your family, your friends, your employers and your workmates for the first time. That was New South Wales Premier Chris Minns there. So what happened was a group of men in balaclavas and carrying Australian flags were stopped from getting off a train heading into the CBD on Friday where there were Australia Day events plus Invasion Day rallies happening. Yesterday, there was another gathering at a park just north of the city which was shut down by police. It's believed that many of the men involved came from interstate. So we know the organiser is from Melbourne and works to recruit young men through gym programs. Uh, And Minns also went on to say that these people are importing hate and fascism into New South Wales. We've seen, Bensian, a lot of protests in Melbourne involving neo-Nazis, you know, with the balaclavas and all in black and some performing the Sieg Heil or the Hitler salute. and. It seems like Chris Minns has suggested that these people have now moved up to New South Wales. So, yeah, it's really awful. And, of course, both New South Wales and Victoria have banned the public display of Nazi symbols and flags, and that was in 2022. But the Premier in New South Wales says he's going to look and see if any of those laws need to be strengthened in response. And activists have thrown soup at the Mona Lisa in Paris, demanding action on what they call the social security of sustainable food. Two women hurled the soup at the painting, which is protected by bulletproof glass, to gasps from the crowd inside the Louvre, asking if art or healthy sustainable food is more important. A group called Riposte Alimentaire, or Food Counterattack, has since claimed responsibility for the stunt in a statement sent to French News news outlet AFP. To give a bit of context, farmers in France are currently protesting for better wages, taxes and regulations. Mm, And it's also not the first time the poor Mona Lisa has been targeted. She had pie thrown at her in 2022 by a climate activist. Interestingly, uh, she went behind glass, so this bulletproof glass that protects her um, at the Louvre. 
She had a rock thrown at her in December 1956, which damaged the left elbow of the painting. So they put the glass up, Um, but it wasn't made bulletproof until 2005. The case she was in was scratched in 2009 when a woman threw an empty teacup at the painting. So, you know, we talk about these climate activists and like, oh, look, they're all targeting, they're targeting art. But it sounds like it's nothing new. It's been happening since the 50s. Yeah, and I guess the question about these stunts is how effective they are because, you know, the most recent report from the UN's climate panel says there's a rapidly closing window of opportunity to secure a livable and sustainable future for all. And I think when you throw soup at the Mona Lisa or you stop people being able to get into work uh, in the morning by blocking a road or something, it demonstrates that the issue is happening, but I'm not sure that it makes anyone more likely to, you know, do something about climate change. I don't know how effective these protests are. Yeah, I'd hazard to say they're probably not effective at all, given, uh, you know, you you referenced there uh, the group that's been gluing themselves to roads kind of all over Australia, blocking ports and things like that. And Unfortunately, what they're actually doing is making people really angry and I don't think that's a way to win supporters over to your cause. But I get it, people feel desperate and they kind of want to do anything that they can to get attention for the cause. Uh, Hey, Bensian, thank you so much for joining us for the headlines today. Next up is our deep dive on whether private schools are actually better than public schools when it comes to student results. Fees are skyrocketing to new heights at the nation's elite private schools. On average, private school fees have risen by almost 6% from last year to this year. That means fees at some of the big schools in Melbourne and Sydney are now tipping 50 grand a year. So with the new school year kicking off, we thought it was time to look at what the data says on student performances in the big private versus public school debate. Claire Weaver is head of our listener investigative journalism team. Claire, welcome to The Briefing. Thanks for joining us. Look, school's about to go back and we often hear this never-ending debate of public versus private schools. So, Claire, you said about trying to find the answer. Tell us about that. Hi, Shasha. That's right, I did. So we're seeing fees tipping over the 50k mark for the first First time in schools like uh, Geelong Grammar in Victoria and Kambala here in New South Wales. And there are plenty more above the 40k a year mark in Sydney and Melbourne. So some of these private schools have incredible facilities and resources, like we're seeing Olympic pools, multimedia rooms, tennis courts and more. And some parents feel like they have to pay if they really want the best for their child. So they'll go and make sacrifices to send their kid to what they think is the best school. Mm. But then you have to ask yourself, what are they really getting for that money? Is the quality of the education actually even better at private schools? So I spoke to David Gillespie, who's the author of Free Schools and a father of six, who decided 10 years ago not to spend more than $1.3 million sending them to private school. And he had a really nice airline analogy. I think a, a great analogy is, is sort of if we were on an aeroplane travelling to London, uh, and, and we were deciding what tickets to buy on that aeroplane. Uh, we might have a choice. We might be able to buy $2,000 tickets, which put us in cattle class um, uh, with minimal service uh, and lots of company. Uh, or we might be able to spend you know, $20,000 and put ourselves right at the pointy end of the plane. Now, 
we would all arrive at London at exactly the same time. We would all have purchased exactly the same thing, which was transport to London. Some of us would have had a considerably more comfortable journey, but the outcome would have been identical. And to me, that's what we're talking about with an education system. Yeah, I feel like that's a really good point, actually. Uh, I do think, though, sometimes there are school, public schools that are disadvantaged compared to the private schools that are available in the same area. But we will we will get to all of that. Let's talk about the divide between basic public schools and most elite private schools. What's the difference? Yeah, look, there's an enormous difference. So we have this huge difference because most of our public schools are underfunded and our private schools are actually overfunded. And there's this official measure of how much money a school needs to educate its students, and that's known as the Schooling Resource Standard, or SRS. So then we have this weird system where our governments, and that's both state and federal, fund public and private schools. The federal government pays 80% of private schools SRS and 20% of public schools SRS. And for state and territory governments, it's the reverse. But this system makes people like Jane Caro, who's a public education advocate and also an author on education, really angry. We still have a situation where every public school in Australia, bar a few in a handful in the ACT, are funded uh, below their agreed school resource standard. And the agreed school resource standard is the amount a school needs to do its job properly, adequately, not brilliantly, properly, adequately. And public schools are funded below that. But every private school in Australia, bar a handful in the Northern Territory, are funded above their school resource standard. This inequality is disastrous. And the kids in private schools do not need extra help. But many argue our governments shouldn't be funding private schools given they charge fees and many have more than enough money as seen in their glossy brochures and incredibly manicured grounds. The divide's really clear. And as someone who went to a public school surrounded by private schools, you can see it pretty clearly in the grounds and what they have access to. But I guess the question is, for parents that maybe are going, oh, what should I do? Do we see better results in private schools versus public schools? Because that's what you'd expect. Absolutely. And you might actually think that if you if you look at the rankings of exam results each year, they're often dominated by private and selective schools. So you might think, well, they're doing better. But the answer is actually no, they're the same. So what does make a difference is socioeconomic status. So kids from more advantaged backgrounds do better because they have better resources. But if you adjust those results for socioeconomic status, kids at public schools do just as well as those from private schools. The biggest indicator of success at school is socioeconomic background of parents. So the better off the family, the more likely the kid is to do well at school. David actually came up with the same conclusion after reviewing the research and deciding to send his kids to public school. If you take kids with the same demographic background and and look at their results in a private school versus a public school, there is no difference. What about the other perceived advantages at private schools? We've talked about the amazing facilities and, you know, the tennis courts and the pools and like the luxe buses to take you to excursions, which is lovely. Um, But there are other advantages that can come along with a private school education. For example, making connections, which can then help you later in life when you're trying to start a career. 
Yeah, look, this definitely seems to be a big perceived benefit for a lot of parents. Um, And Australia certainly has a history of that so-called boys network that seems to elevate people from particular schools into positions of power. But it's all pretty un-Australian. And the flip side to this is the risk of fostering a sense of entitlement and elitism in kids at private schools. So Jane had something to say on this. There are degrees of difficulty in private education too, not least an attitude which sometimes says my dad could buy you out five times over when a teacher tries to discipline some spoiled little twat. Oh, my God. Strong words from Jane. And for David, who went to a private school himself, he wanted to keep it real for his kids. I personally feel that the public school that my kids went to has an extraordinary cross-section of Australian society in it. You end up with kids who come out better adjusted to that and and with a more realistic uh, view of the world than perhaps I did uh, in going to an all-boys, quite wealthy private school. Mm, It's an interesting perspective, that one. So I guess then if it doesn't matter whether a school is public or private, what does determine if a school is good? What should parents be keeping an eye out for? Yeah, look, David has done a lot of research on this and he found there are three important factors in what makes a good school. Interestingly, though, there were some things that a lot of parents worry about that he found actually make no difference, like class size and whether a teacher has extra qualifications or extra experience after the first three years. So don't worry about those factors. What does matter is, number one, leadership. You need a good principal who cares about the staff and the students. And that means not being a psychopath, which sounds funny, but psychopaths are overrepresented in, in management in across sectors. So, so yeah, don't have a psychopath as your principal. Um, and I suppose parents uh, can, you know, shop around different schools and look for that. And then the second thing is teachers who are engaged and work together. Um, doesn't mean spending more time with the kids, but it means, um, yeah, being, being efficient and um, supporting each other. And then thirdly, it's parents who care about their kids' educational outcomes. So they're engaged, they're involved, they know what their kids are are learning. But David made the point that those second two factors only matter if you get the first one right. Mm. So leadership. Yeah. It seems though that would be something that's quite hard to tell from the outside, right? But I suppose there are ways, you know, talking, I'm guessing talking to other parents from the school might be a good start. Yeah, absolutely. And you can go on those um, tours like of a school and you know, you get taken around. Obviously, you get shown the best of the best, but, you know, you can ask questions. So, yeah, do your research. Yeah. All right. So the inequality that exists surely isn't good for our education system. Are there any solutions being looked at to address the divide? Yeah. Look, both Jane and David agree our governments should defund private schools. So more funding goes into the schools that actually need it. Here's Jane. If I was really boss of the wash, I'd say no public funding to private schools like most of the rest of the world sensibly does. You want to take your kids out of the public system available to all to buy yourself or your child what you perceive as an advantage, you should pay for it, not the parents of those kids you've left behind. Oh, just defund private schools. Uh, That's the easiest way out. Um, And there'll be lots of squealing about that. uh, And it should be done over a probably an extended period. What will happen when we do that is that we'll end up with a system rather like the UK, I suspect, uh, where about 6% of the population choose to pay entirely for their child to be privately educated and the rest are public educated. Yeah, and Jane also makes the point that public schools actually need more funding than private schools because they have higher amounts of need. 
we are really seeing concentrations of kids who need extra and special support in our underfunded public school system. This is a disgrace. Mm. Again, strong words from Jane. Absolutely, very strong words. And look, you can't just suddenly turn the tap off with funding, so this would have to be done gradually, but it would bring us in line with um, other school systems overseas. Mm. Yeah, it's such an interesting thing that has happened in Australia with our education system, especially given that we're pretty big on universal access to a lot of things. But as we've discussed today, the divide that exists is really quite sad, especially for people who don't have the option, which is a lot of people to send their kids to private schools. So, I mean, I guess you can only hope we will see maybe a slow turning of the tap to uh, maybe start to give more to our public schools. Uh, Claire, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Sasha. And that is all for today's briefing. Thank you so much for listening. Be sure to check back the Savo at three for our episode looking at AI predicting the future, that one with Bensian. If you'd like to get in touch with us here, maybe you've got an idea for an episode or you'd like to have your say, you can head to our Instagram page and send us a message or join our broadcast channel behind the briefing. Simple as that, the briefing on Instagram. Listener.